Hello, Relatable listeners. Happy Wednesday. Hope everyone is having a wonderful week. Update, for those of you who follow me on Instagram, I'm really going to work hard today on saying the word important correctly. My dad called me out after listening to Monday's podcast and said, will you say this word, I-M-P-O-R-T-A-N-T? And I knew immediately what he was talking about because this is the second time in my life I've been called out for this. When I was recording the PragerU video that I did last year, they also made me keep redoing it because apparently I say important, but I do feel a lot better that so many of you, probably 50 of you at least, messaged me on Instagram and said that you say it the same way. I don't think it's a millennial thing. A lot of people reached out to me and were like, oh no, I'm not a millennial, I say it too. Boys, girls, it, it didn't matter. Important, I have no idea why we say it like that, but my parents think it's weird. It's also not a Southern thing. Had a lot of Northerners and Midwesterners say it, and my parents are from Arkansas. And so I I don't think it's a Southern thing. I don't know what it is. Why do we say important? I don't know, but I'm gonna I'm gonna work hard to say at least important. Important is just a little too extra for me. I really don't have a ton of like weird words, I don't think, unless one of you is going to like email me and be like, here are the words that you say incorrectly. And so maybe I'll just be humbled by that. That's not what we're talking about today at all. Oh, another update. I, I am wearing a Quelo ring because I couldn't fit my, I also told you guys on Instagram, I couldn't fit my regular wedding ring on anymore. I made it a pretty long time, like seven and a half months made it a long time being able to wear my wedding ring, but my fingers now, uh, you know, seven and some odd months into the pregnancy, they are too, they're too swollen for my wedding ring. And I was really scared that I was going to have to get my wedding ring cut off. So I just wanted to update you guys on that. Those of you who follow me on Instagram and follow my Instagram stories already knew that, but I just wanted to make sure that I gave you an update. Anyway, this is going to be, I just realized a really stark transition to what we're talking about because we're not talking about lighthearted things today. We are actually talking about very sad things. And so let's take one second, take a deep breath and move on to a completely different tone and a completely different subject that is very serious and nothing like what I just talked about. So I do want to talk about the Poway Synagogue shooting that happened this past weekend, the last day of Passover. Absolutely tragic. At this point, it's been a few days, and so you probably already know the details of it. I don't want to weigh you down too much with that, but it's kind of going to open our conversation, of course, to how the media has reacted to that and how and what that indicates as far as where we are as a culture, where we are as a society, where we are as uh, far as political dialogue goes and racial dialogue goes. Uh, this always anti-Semitism and racism always kind of go hand in hand as far as conversations go. And so I'm going to use that as a launching pad to talk about kind of a deeper and a broader subject and one that we have been dealing with for especially the past few years as a country, this issue of race and whose fault, what is, and how we are supposed to look at all of this through the lens of the Bible and as Christians. So just to give you an update, for those of you who don't know what happened in Poway, it's a, a, I think that's how you pronounce it. If I didn't pronounce it correctly, please tell me. It's right outside of San Diego. According to NPR, uh, police say that a 19-year-old walked into the synagogue and started firing with an assault rifle, uh, killing one woman and injuring three others, including Rabbi uh, Yasori. I don't know how to pronounce that. Goldstein. So Rabbi Goldstein. Uh, his He had to get a finger amputated because I think he was actually shot in both hands. But there was, um, I don't want to call it a rumor, but there was a story that the woman who died 
side actually put herself in front of the rabbi to protect him. We don't know that for sure. That is a story of heroism that was going around. Either way, the loss of her life is absolutely tragic. The rabbi had a lot of beautiful, wonderful things to say about this woman that she was this kind-hearted, uh, giving woman. And of course, no matter who she was, it is extremely sad. I feel for her family and the entire uh, community who is dealing with that loss, not to mention the very real and constantly imminent fear that these communities have that something like this is going to happen. Anti-Semitic violence has something, is something that has always been around, but there has been an uptick in particularly religious violence, uh, not just in the United States, but really around the world over the past few years. And unfortunately, Jews have been a very prominent target of these kinds of attacks. And so when people are going to worship uh, on the weekends, when people are doing community events with their families, they are constantly thinking about their lives being at risk. That's something that we shouldn't have to think about in the United States of America. But unfortunately, because evil people do exist, uh, we do. And I feel for this community and my heart really breaks for them. Now, about this particular, uh, this particular crime and attack that we're talking about, it's interesting that a tip was actually sent to the FBI uh, five minutes before the shooting happened from someone who saw the shooter's manifesto on um, a, a site called 8chan. It's a message board that bills itself as, quote, the darkest reaches of the internet. It is a site basically filled with uh, white nationalist conspiracy theories. I don't really know what else to call it. Uh, I don't really want to quote the manifesto. Uh, I've seen a few quotes. Uh, I don't want to give this guy or his manifesto any any credit. Uh, he talks about having an obligation to uh, kill Jews in the midst to setting a mosque on fire. Uh, the bottom line is he is lost. He is confused. He doesn't know God. Therefore, he doesn't no love, uh, his capacity for hate because of that knows no bounds. Uh, we should seriously pray for his repentance, uh, that someone would share the gospel with him in prison and that he would come to know Jesus as his savior. Uh, then, and probably only then, is someone like this going to feel the weight of the shame that he should feel for sin. You know, it's funny, we as a society, especially in, you know, the social media world, we hear a lot that shame is bad, that shame and guilt are two very different things that people shouldn't feel shame at all. Um, I don't agree with that when it comes to sin. Now, I do think that there is a difference between self-deprecating shame where you just um, hate yourself for hate yourself indiscriminately. I think that's a little bit different than the shame that should be rightfully associated with sin. I do believe that shame and godly guilt are important tools to lead us to repentance and lead us to ask for forgiveness. And so I do pray that this person becomes ashamed of his sin and ashamed of what he did and that he comes to know Christ. Of course, we know if he does not repent, then he will spend eternity in torment. And there's something that we as as Christians can take comfort in, uh, that Jesus will, he promises that one day, the Bible says that one day he will judge the living and the dead. One day he will establish his rule and he will reign in perfect peace forever. What we can trust in and hope in is that God is a God of justice, that he cares about evil. He cares about violence he cares about crime. He cares about oppression. He cares about injustice. He cares. 
nothing, not a single thing, not a single action or thought or word for that matter escapes his sight. Nothing escapes his power. Um, You often hear people ask why God, if he's really there and he's really good and he's really powerful, why doesn't he stop these terrible things from happening? But we should not be mistaken. God is never idle. He is never idle. He is slow to anger, but his anger is always kindling against those who stand opposed to him. We have hope in his recompense. We have hope in his retribution. We have hope in his justice that once and for all, he will lay down the proverbial hammer and he will rule in perfect peace. We don't need to worry about that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. In the meantime, We pray for these families of the victims. We even pray for the shooter, as crazy as that is. That was one seemingly crazy thing that Jesus said, that we should pray for our enemies. Uh, We should pray, though, uh, for the families of these victims, no matter what the faith is, whether it was uh, the, the Christ Church shooting where a mosque was shut up or whether it is a synagogue as Christians, we should pray for them. Uh, we pray for their safety. We pray for their comfort as Christians. We, of course, pray for God to call them to himself. Uh, that is, Ephesians said, the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Uh, we befriend them. We stand with them against violence. We love them. Uh, we serve them. Uh, A few other facts before moving on to the next part of this. Uh, According to the New York Times, California has more organized hate groups than any other state. That's really interesting. I don't have any conclusions to draw from that. I just think that's interesting. Um, It has chapters for street fighting skinheads and black nationalists, uh, Holocaust deniers and Muslim haters. Um, There are some persecution facts from last week as well that Pew Research put out. Uh, Jews remain the third most targeted religious group by both governments and social groups throughout the world. Number one is Christians. Number two is Muslims. Number three is Jews. Uh, This targeting takes on a lot of different forms. It includes uh, physical assaults, arrests, detentions, uh, desecration of holy sites, discrimination against religious groups in employment, education, and housing. That's how Pew is defining uh, this kind of persecution or this kind of targeting. Uh, The Jewish people are affected in 87 different countries throughout the world. Uh, When we look at the responses to what happened in Poway, Trump condemned anti-Semitism. He uh, condemned it exclusively. Uh, Pretty much every elected official that I saw has condemned anti-Semitism, specifically by name, which is good. That's exactly what they should do. We shouldn't be shy about saying uh, who did this or who is charged for doing this, the ideology that that person has had and the people that were targeted and why they were targeted. Of course, as we talked about last week, um, many of these same officials had a hard time uh, bringing themselves to say that Christians were targeted in Sri Lanka by radical Islamic terrorists. We, of course, know the reason for that. Um, It's because it doesn't fit the narrative the way that it the way that a white supremacist shooting up a mosque or a a synagogue does. It doesn't fit the narrative. It's unfortunate. In both cases, we shouldn't be afraid. No matter who the perpetrator is, no matter who the victims are, we shouldn't be afraid of saying uh, who did this and why this happened. Or just don't say anything at all. Don't say anything about motives. Don't say anything about religious affiliation whatsoever. Um, But if we're going to be specific, which I believe we should, that should be true across the board. And I'm glad, I am glad in this instance that people were willing to call out anti-Semitism. Uh, the problem is, though, we immediately see the political the political motives underneath uh, 
calling out anti-Semitism for some people on the left, and I'm sure this is true in other instances of tragedy uh, for people on the right. Uh, so I'm not saying that this this only happens on the left after something like this happens. Um, they are blaming Trump. They are saying this is Trump's fault. And I will give you some examples for that if we want to look at how the media responded. So Joy Behar on The View, she said, take responsibility for your actions, Mr. President. You are the culprit. This was after a long uh, monologue about how Trump really isn't handling these things very well. Joe Scarborough on MSNBC, we are so far beyond dog whistles here, Donald. He says, we are so far beyond dog whistles. The blood that is spilled is on your hands from white nationalists, from people that listen to that sort of rhetoric, any violence to journalists, enemy of the people, you are unfit to be the president of the United States. A guest on MSNBC, Mehdi Hassan, says, we have a president who not only will not acknowledge we have an epidemic of white nationalist terror, he's providing the mood music for it. Chris Cuomo of CNN, why is President Trump so loud in his condemnation of Islamic terrorism and so much quieter in his concern over right wing extremism? Okay, so on that one particular, and then we'll kind of bring it to all of the quotes that I just read. I'm not sure that's true, what Chris Cuomo said. Uh, I'm not sure it's true that President Trump is louder uh, about Islamic terrorism than he is about right-wing extremism. Because number two, the fact of the matter is Islamic extremism has uh, taken the lives of literally thousands of more people than so-called right-wing terrorism has. That's just a fact. Uh, number three, you could say the same thing about people on the left, why they refuse to call out Islamic terrorism when it clearly happens and only the kind, only the kind of terrorism that seems to fit their agenda or that they think fits their agenda. And number four, uh, these white supremacists that are committing these horrible acts of terror that I believe are acts of terror are not conservatives. Okay, like, let's just get that straight. If they were conservatives, I would have no problem saying, hey, they're conservatives. They believe the same things I do. They just happen to be uh, interpreting them wrongly. But that's not even true. They're not conservatives, as the left would have you believe. Uh, This shooter in Poway called Trump a shill for the Jews. So let us just have a lesson here on this stuff really fast or else we're going to miss it and we're going to let ourselves be manipulated by the narrative of the media. And I don't think that that's I don't think that that's right, no matter what the subject is. Uh, These people on 8chan and other white nationalist sites have much, much more in common with people on the left who are obsessed with identity politics. I'm not saying that they're the same. I'm not saying that they share the exact same ideology, but they have a lot more in common with the people who are obsessed with identity politics than they do your mainstream conservative. Uh, In fact, the wretched people in this subset, this, uh, this white nationalist subset of our culture, which does unfortunately exist, uh, They love identity politics. They truly believe that they are defending their white culture and defending uh, their white identity in the same way that they think that other racial groups are. Uh, They are not, not conservative in any sense of the word. They do not care about the Constitution. They don't care about the founding fathers. They don't care about small government. They don't care about liberty. Uh, There is nothing about them that looks conservative. Uh, They are not even, they're not even right-wing in the sense that Americans have deemed right-wing, except that they are 
fascist, which is technically on the far right end of the spectrum in the same way that communism is on the far left end of the spectrum, but they are both totalitarian. They have a lot in common with each other, communism and fascism, a lot more in common with each other than they do with other people on their side of the political spectrum, if that makes any sense. Um, and by the way, just a side note, communism is just as evil as fascism. I just want to make sure that we point that out. Um, but you will notice, you will notice that the media uses terms like right wing to describe white nationalists and people like me uh, and people like Ben Shapiro or anyone to the right of Nancy Pelosi. So they call people like me right wing and they call this guy right wing. I mean, there's this whole um, website called Right Wing Watch. They've written a few articles about me. They're actually typically a couple of them at least have been pretty factual. All they do is quote me. And apparently they think quotes about marriage and the Constitution are like they're scandalous enough in and of themselves. They don't even have to write any commentary. Same with Dave Rubin. That's why I say anyone to the right of Nancy Pelosi, they deem our right wing. And they do this on purpose. They want you to start conflating conservative with fascist. They want you to start lumping together everyone that they deem on the right. They want you to think that fascism, that white nationalism is a symptom or a reason for voting for Donald Trump. They want you to think that if you vote for Trump or if someone voted for Trump, then they are supporting terrorism. They want to conflate someone like Ben Shapiro or someone like me, someone who is a conservative based on their values and principles with someone who is a right-wing white nationalist. They want you to think that there's really not that much different between the two of us. So you associate everyone on the right, everyone who is conservative, everyone who votes for Donald Trump as a terrorist or as a soon-to-be terrorist. So you think that this, uh, our philosophies on the right are inherently evil, which is absolute hogwash. That's just not true. As I've already explained, we have nothing in common with them. They have much more in common with people on the far left, as all extremists do, than they do with anyone in the middle, on the left or the right. Um, the media has also, which we saw a couple of weeks ago and we're seeing again, they call President Trump's speech incitements. Uh, which, as I have said before, is just a way to shut down speech that they don't like so that it doesn't fall within the protection of the First Amendment so that they can say that they have grounds on which they can censor people because it's technically incitement of violence. No, it's not. No, it's not. Um, Trump is the most, whether you like him or not, whether you think he's absolute buffoon or you love him and think he's the greatest president that we've ever had, the fact is that he is the most pro-Israel president that we have had in recent history. Israel loves Donald Trump. Uh, his son-in-law is Jewish. His daughter converted to Judaism. You honestly think that he is the one here stoking anti-Semitism? That's just not true. And what that tells me is that these people in the media, though they say that they care so much about bigotry and intolerance, that they're really not taking this seriously. This is really just a partisan fight for them. And like I said, people on both sides of the aisle are guilty of this. I'm probably guilty of this at times in other instances, but we're seeing an example of this now. Um, so let us talk about, this is also why I know they're not really taking it seriously because they refuse, most of them, not all, they refuse to address anti-Semitism within their own ranks. Uh, the New York Times is probably the foremost liberal publication, if, if not 
uh, in the world, at least in the country, and they are decidedly liberal. Anyone who doesn't think that the New York Times leans left is probably, you're probably just on the left yourself, and so you don't see that bias. They are ardently liberal. Uh, last Thursday, the New York Times published an anti-Semitic cartoon in the opinion pages of its international edition. Uh, the, cart- the cartoon portrayed a blind President Trump wearing a skull cap, uh, what many of us would call a yarmulke, uh, being led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, drawn as a dog on a leash with a Star of David collar. Okay, if you haven't seen this, I encourage you to look it up. Just look up probably New York Times anti-Semitic cartoon. There's been a lot of people running with the story. Uh, this is Nazi propaganda, okay? It, it just is. This is not like, oh, you're exaggerating. Oh, that's a hyperbole. No, this is Nazi propaganda. And I'm not calling everyone who disagrees with me a Nazi. I'm not calling people on the left a Nazi. I'm calling this specific cartoon Nazi propaganda because that is what it was. The dehumanization of Jews as dogs and other animals was rampant in Nazi Germany. Uh, And you know what this reminds me of? You know what this reminds me of? Uh, President Trump blindfolded being led by Netanyahu. It reminds me of the quote by Ilhan Omar or what she said on Twitter a few years ago that has now been circulating. She said, Israel has hypnotized the world. So that's interesting. That's interesting. I mean, that kind of seems like the the same thing here. This anti-Semitic cartoon is saying that the world, or at least Donald Trump, is blinded by Netanyahu, who was depicted as a dog. I mean, I cannot believe that editors actually saw that and approved it and ran with it. It's just so crazy. It's mind-boggling to me. Um, so President Trump is blind, being led, and Ilhan Omar saying that uh, that Israel has hypnotized the world. It's the same kind of thing that they are hucksters. That's what Karl Marx said in his words. He said that they are hucksters and that they are uh, tricksters. They are tricking people. They're manipulating people. These are anti-Semitic tropes that someone in Congress, a freshman Congresswoman, is perpetuating and the New York Times is perpetuating. And you've got leftist media saying that it is Trump's fault that these things are happening. What? Anti-Semitism is mainstream on the left. I'm not saying that it counts for everyone. I'm certainly not. But it is mainstream on the left. It is accepted as a sophisticated part of the academic left to be anti-Semitic and just to say, oh, no, it's just foreign policy criticism. It's just compassion for the Palestinians. It's just understanding Israel's American-like imperialistic place in the world. No, it is not. No, it's not. It is Jew hatred. That's what it is. And it's mainstream on the left and they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to call out Ilhan Omar. They don't want to call out the New York Times. Again, not everyone, some on the left have, but for the most part, they instead just was no, 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 no. It's just President Trump. He's the only one perpetuating bigotry. Blood is on his hands, not Ilhan Omar. And in fact, if you say that Ilhan Omar the one who said that Israel is hypnotizing the world, the one who said that the only reason that Republicans care about Israel is for the Benjamins. That's another anti-Semitic trope. If you criticize her for possibly being anti-Semitic, the left says that is Islamophobia. Can you square that for me? Can you give me that logic? I'm not totally understanding that. Um, The New York Times did uh, make a statement they made a statement. I won't I will not say that they apologized because it actually didn't have an apology in it. This was Sunday afternoon after, of course, the attack in Poway that happened. Uh, they issued a statement saying that it was wrong to run a cartoon that contained, quote, anti-Semitic tropes. 
But that statement didn't contain any apology. Do you know why it didn't contain any apology? Because I didn't really think that it was something to apologize for. Honestly, they probably didn't think it was that bad. I mean, you got to think about this. Someone had to write this cartoon. They had to send it to at least one editor to say, yeah, this is totally fine. And then the higher ups at New York Times looked at that and said, you know what? Okay, in the in light of this anti-Semitic attack that just happened in which a person died, we should probably say something about this. But hey, don't apologize. Don't apologize for dehumanizing a Jewish person as a dog. Don't don't do that. That's too far. But let's just say something about it. Well, that didn't go over well. As you can imagine, there were a lot of people mad about that, that the New York Times decided to run it, obviously, but also that they didn't apologize. Then they sent out a new statement, the gracious, gracious New York Times. They said, we are deeply sorry. Okay, that's a better start. We are deeply sorry for the publication of an anti-Semitic political cartoon last Thursday in the print edition of the New York Times that circulates outside of the United States. Again, this is like just maybe I'm reading too far into it because I'm a girl and I just know how passive aggressive we can we can be in our text messages. But I feel like what they are saying is that they are emphasizing this was a print edition of the New York Times. So it's not like it was online and it circulates outside of the United States. So they're still making an excuse for it. They're saying, hey, like this is a, it, we're not we're not making light of the anti-Semitic problem in the United States. This was an international print edition, guys. It still comes across to me that I'm sorry that you feel that way. And I've heard this statement and I've listened to this or listened and heard the same thing. I've read this statement and that still is what jumps out at me. And I'm not trying to be nitpicky, but it just seems like they're still making excuses. Uh, and then they said, we are committed to making sure that nothing like this happens again. Uh, the matter remains under review and we are evaluating our internal processes and training. We anticipate significant changes. Okay. Uh, so the paper that is hypersensitive to every form of microaggression against every supposedly marginalized group on the entire planet and maybe even in outer space didn't pick up on the fact that this was anti-Semitic and they're just going to get better. Okay, sounds good. And then a few days later, they actually posted another anti-Semitic depiction of Netanyahu uh, looking nefarious, holding the Star of David. So that's great. Uh, that's great. But it's definitely Republicans, conservatives and Donald Trump that are the anti-Semitic ones. The left, they're just compassionate, guys. I don't know which, I don't know why you think that they have a problem. They don't have any problem at all. They're perfect. And in fact, if you criticize them, it's probably because you're just xenophobic, right? That makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's probably why AOC compared Ilhan Omar to a Holocaust victim by posting that quote of, um, you know, that quote that's like they they came for the socialists and I didn't say anything because I wasn't a socialist. They came for the Jews and I didn't say anything because I wasn't a Jew. AOC posted that in reference to Ilhan Omar, who is anti-Semitic to compare her to Holocaust victims. But no, I don't want you to even think about that, guys, because it's conservatives and Donald Trump that are anti-Semitic. OK, just I need us to all understand that. Got it? OK, now. I want to talk about the response to this by Christians as well. Some Christians. Um, it's really a response to white supremacy in general, because this has been a hot topic within the church, talking about white supremacy and talking about racism and things like that, which I've never been against talking about racism. I've never been against uh, talking about the sin of racism and the sin of white supremacy. 
uh, et cetera. I think that's something to talk about where there is a problem. We should say that it's a problem where there is a sin. We should say that there is a sin, something I do have a problem with and have had a problem with, as you've heard me talk about many times on this podcast is, um, condemning an entire group of people. So all of white people for perpetuating or being complicit in white supremacy, et cetera. That I have a problem with the social justice of white people need to uh, take a step back or, or take a back seat or to be pushed down so we can elevate black people, reparation, different things like that. I also have a problem with people within the church offering so-called solutions for racial reconciliation that are not biblical, that are outside of the gospel, such as reparations, and not talking about biblical forms of justice, but talking about secular forms of justice. Those things I haven't been down with because I believe that any sin that we have, any sin that causes division, the solution for it is found in the gospel. The solution for it is found uh, in the Bible. And I've talked about this multiple times already. Um, but I do want to talk about a a particular example of just how we have let this narrative kind of go haywire. I've heard someone else say this, and I I can't remember who it is, but the the amount of times or the the amount that we talk about racism doesn't correspond to the actual number of racists. I can't remember where I heard that. I didn't come up with that. The number of racists uh, in this country, that is so true. We talk about racism way more than it actually exists. And this is a uh, very good example of someone doing this. So a really popular female teacher within the Southern Baptist Convention who has been around for a long time, she tweeted this. There are simply no gospel grounds for defending white supremacy. None. This isn't theological rocket science. The savior of the world gave himself on the cross for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father wearing a brown body. So this is what I'm talking about. I need examples. I need examples. Oh, Like, who is doing this? A lot of people ask her, who is doing this? Like, I agree with you that white supremacy is evil. I have no problem calling these people terrorists. There is no gospel basis for this. There is no biblical basis for this. There is no, you can't share a table. Like Christianity and white supremacy, white nationalism, any form of racial supremacy, by the way, but I'll get into that in a second, can share a table with Christianity. There's no room for that. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. But this tweet reads as if there are people who are trying to ground white supremacy in the gospel that are justifying white supremacy in the gospel. And I, I haven't seen, I haven't seen that happen. And this person is not giving us any examples. And so when that happens, you have to kind of wonder if this is just a virtue signal, uh, because this person has recently in the past couple of years become very woke. Let's just say that she has become extremely woke and she has uh, fancied herself a woke theologian and someone who understands all of these complex social justice issues. And so she gets away with saying things like this, knowing that she's going to get a lot of amens and a lot of applause. But then there are people like me who would really like to know who is perpetuating white supremacy in the name of the gospel. I'm not saying that's never happened. It's happened throughout history, but we can easily look at those people and say, okay, uh, they're wrong. That's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible says. I don't know anyone that does that today. Maybe some fringe randos out on the, do you know anyone mainstream evangelicals? 
who are saying, you know, white supremacy, it kind of goes along with what Jesus said. Like it kind of goes along with the, like, do you, do you know anyone like that? I don't know anyone like that. However, I do know, I know a lot of people that uh, espouse this black liberation theology that is essentially black supremacy. I know a lot of people doing that. I mean, you can go back and you can listen to my episodes, Wayward Wokeness. We also talked about black liberation theology, the similarities between that, the Nation of Islam, and Marxism. We did that uh, a few weeks ago, so you can listen to my thoughts on that. It is a heretical ideology that really has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. That is becoming mainstream in the church. That is becoming mainstream within evangelicalism. I don't know anyone who is saying that white supremacy is rooted in the gospel, but I know plenty of people saying that other forms of racial supremacy are rooted in the gospel and the life of Jesus Christ. Um, Let's call that out. That's a lot more mainstream nowadays. But of course, that's not woke and that's not evangelical. Now, I do want to talk about the other part of this person's tweet, the brown body part. Why? Why why is this necessary? This is not something, again, that I see contested today. I just don't. Yes, European art has traditionally depicted Jesus with light skin, which is probably most likely inaccurate. It is. I'll just say it is inaccurate, even though I've never seen the physical body of Jesus. But I have never thought of Jesus as anything other than dark complected. And it doesn't bother me at all uh, what he looked like. He doesn't. I don't think about that. Uh, What we know is that he was a Middle Eastern Jew. And so he probably looked like a Middle Eastern Jew. Isaiah 53 describes the coming Messiah as he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Um, This whole emphasis on the color of Jesus's skin is right up there with what we've talked about before with leftists insisting upon calling Jesus a Palestinian, which, as we have also discussed, is historically inaccurate. New York Times had to apologize for this description recently because Palestine was not dubbed a geographical region until about 100 years, more than 100 years after Jesus died. And so calling him Palestinian today is just a way to make Jesus our form of woke. Um, It's an attempt to align Jesus with today's standards of intersectionality and oppression to make him a mascot for wokeness. I will repeat something that I said on Twitter over the weekend. Uh, Those obsessed with reminding everyone that Jesus wasn't white also need to realize that Jesus wasn't woke. Okay, Like there's this idea that the reason Jesus came was to be this wild progressive. The reason why people didn't like Jesus was because he was a liberal, because he was a radical egalitarian, because he was a feminist, because he was a liberation theologian. That's not true, guys. Read your Bibles. He was God. He was the creator, the savior, the, the man of sorrows, the great I am. He was the great high priest, the eternal intercessor. He is all of those things. Uh, he is the great uh, immovable one. He is not going to be constrained by our uh, political descriptions of him, whether we're on the right or the left, by the way. He's not a mascot. He is not a political prop. He is God. He did not come down to show us how to be progressive. He came down to show us how to come and die and to save us and to reconcile us to God, no matter the melanin count in our skin. All of us. Uh, He didn't come to shake things up. He came down to save us and to show us heaven's way of loving and living regardless of race. Uh, She then tweeted, in case anyone else, because I asked for 
specifics. A lot of people ask for specifics. In case anyone else is asking who's actually defending white supremacy, there are lots of ways to defend it. Some are just more passive. Some deny it's even an issue. What are you smoking? She says, we can't be unclear any longer on this sickness. If you don't see it, you're not looking. Again, I just want some examples. I just want to know so I can call it out too. I want to know what this looks like. Uh, She says some are just more passive. So some are active. Some are actively grounding white supremacy in the gospel. Where? Where? I I want to know. Uh, This is very typical, though, of the social justice crowd. Uh, They are never asked to define their terms among their group. They just say these pseudo-academic woke words, knowing the people who agree with them are just going to nod and say amen. But when they're asked for specifics, when they're asked to define their terms, uh, and when they can't do either of those things, they blame you for not being woke enough, for not really understanding, for being too privileged, for being too fragile. How dare you even ask? You just must not be looking. If you have to ask me for instances of people grounding the white supremacy supremacy in the gospel, you just must be blind. Okay, open my eyes to see. Open my eyes. I I just don't get it. So those of us who don't see white supremacy as a rampant issue in the church are a problem, but you refuse to show us where it is? Be our spiritual Sherpa. Show us where this exists, and I will call it out alongside with you. I guarantee you. If someone like uh, if if someone tried to justify white supremacy with the Bible and I saw it, I would be so quick to call them out. I would be doing my podcast on that right now. It might be the most passionate podcast episode I've ever done. If I saw someone who was actually in the mainstream justifying that, I absolutely would be calling it out in the same way that I called out the black liberation theology that was being spouted off at the Sparrow Conference a couple weeks ago in Dallas. I would be so passionately and ardently breaking down the stupidity of the argument that tries to justify white supremacy with the Bible. I guarantee you. But apparently, I'm just, according to this person, those of us who don't see this as a rampant problem, we're just blind. We just don't know. Uh, but like I said, this is very typical of those on the social justice left. They don't uh, they don't like specifics. Uh, so I actually had another story to tell you guys that kind of ties that ties into that, but we're already kind of going long. We're already at almost 40 minutes and I don't want to spend too much time on this. Uh, But here's what I'll say. I'll just kind of skip forward to, I'll skip forward to my conclusion. So Christians, like I said, we should call out hate where it exists. We should call out sin where it exists. We should call out wrong theology where it exists. Obviously, you guys know that I believe that. I don't care what side of the aisle that you're on. When it comes to Christianity, we transcend politics because God transcends our political parties. And so we see things through the eyes of scripture, not the eyes of Donald Trump, not the eyes of Republican or Democrat, and not the eyes of race either. The answer for all of our strife, the answer for our discord, the answer for violence is the gospel. Uh, The problem is sin. The solution is the cross. End of story. Now, that does have implications for how we live our life. Uh, We are to preach the gospel. We are to feed the poor. We're supposed to care for the orphan and the widow. We are to seek justice that is based on truth, by the way, not based on skin color and not feelings, and to love mercy. That is what we are called to do. Anything outside of that This gospel of grievance that we see so much perpetuated by the woke Christian left uh, is not biblical. It's not the gospel, and it is only going to cause more division. 
It's not healing. It's not reconciling. It doesn't make whole. It doesn't fulfill. That's not the gospel that Jesus came to preach. The gospel that Jesus came to preach is, yes, it is divisive because it's true, because, but it is divisive because it is so indiscriminatory that it has nothing to do with people's race, has nothing to do with people's ethnicity. It says no matter who you are, you are the same level of depraved. You are the same level of dead in your sin and you need me to make you alive. That is what the gospel of Christ does. It doesn't say that some people are less dead in sin uh, than others because of the oppression that they've experienced. That's not the gospel. Jesus says, you are all sick. There is none that is righteous. No, not one. You are all dead in your sin and all of you need me. An equal amount, by the way. There's not levels of dead. There's just dead. Does it matter your background? Does it matter your upbringing? Does it matter your race? We are all dead in sin apart from Christ and we are all called to the same things. There is not a different gospel for different races. There is one gospel and it reconciles us. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female when we are in Christ Jesus. So that's how I want to end it. And again, I have a lot more to say about that, but that is true as no matter no matter what kind of terrorist attack that we see, these people who do these things do it because they do not know God. And our job as Christians is to share the gospel, to feed the poor, care for the orphan, seek ju- justice and love mercy. Okay, I hope that you guys have a wonderful rest of your day and I will see you here on Friday. 